So we are in on. chapter 2. Okay, we're on. Uh, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. It, it, does anybody need a study guide? If you do, just raise your hand and we'll get you a copy. Okay, one back here. Oh, two. I'm also trying to position the microphone a little bit differently so you don't pick up my breathing, so don't sound like Darth Vader this time. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that Jean Ann asked a question about whether I thought Sosthenes, that's spoken about in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, was the same person in Acts 18. And I told her, I said, I didn't think so. Well, I thought it was possible, but it wasn't a strong case for it. I said, but I remember there was this paper that was written that tried to answer this. And I said, I hadn't read it, but I'll go ahead and read it. And I read it, and I was like, actually, this guy made a really good case that he thinks they're the same person and put a, a really good case together. So if you're interested in that, let me know. I can give you the paper. I thought about summarizing it here, but it would probably take five minutes, and I don't know if you even care. Uh, so I can get you the paper. I also have in the teacher's guide, I tried to summarize that argument down into about three or four pages. So, and it's got little tables in there that explains what the case is. There's actually three different ways to understand who Sosthenes is and why this one, I think, seems like the best case, that it is the same person. Incidentally, he actually thinks, in Acts 18, it describes a guy named Crispus, who's a synagogue leader, who becomes a Christian. And then immediately after that, it talks about Sosthenes, the synagogue leader. And what he, this guy is saying is he thinks they're actually the same person. And I, I was like, yeah, I don't know about that. And then I read through the article, I was like, actually, it makes a lot of sense. Acts 18 makes a lot more sense to me thinking of it that way. So I was actually convinced by this person's argument. Uh, in chapter 1, so we talked about how Paul is concerned that the Corinthians have prioritized wisdom. I'm putting that in quotes because a lot of times it turns out it's been twisted a bit with a, a worldly perspective on it. They prioritize this view of wisdom over unity and character. And one thing that Katrina pointed out was that in the intro, right off the bat, he says, Paul says, Jesus Christ. And he says it over and over and over again. And she said something about how he doesn't use pronouns. He doesn't simplify. He just says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. She said, I don't know if that's represented like that in the Greek. Well, I had noted it was nine times, but I didn't remember if it actually said Jesus Christ repeatedly in the Greek. It does. So this leads nicely into chapter two because chapter two starts to give you the answer to a lot of these problems. And of course, the answer is no surprise is Jesus Christ. And then remember too that gifts are important. So gifts wind up being, he introduces the idea there that gifts are part of this. The problem is, is that they got to fit it into the right, fit it into the right place. And they've actually made some mistakes on that. So with that said, we're going to have a prayer, and then we'll, we'll kick it off. Dear God, we are so thankful to be here studying your word together. Thank you for um, these letters to be preserved over time that we can benefit from knowing your mind and, and your will and, and seeing a glimpse of how Christians uh, live and serve I remember talking to a woman some 
few years ago. And she kept saying, she said, I just want to be happy. And I remember thinking that it was odd because I found that the people who make happiness their aim are the saddest people that I know. And I remember there was a line in Mere Christianity, and C.S. Lewis says, he said, there are some things in life that you cannot get if you make them your primary motive. They always have to be the result of something else. So if you make happiness your aim, you'll never be able to find it. But if you make other people's happiness your aim, then not only will you find happiness for them, but you'll find it for yourself. And the more I thought about it, I realized there's an entire class of things that fit into a category like that, that they always have to be secondary. They can't be the primary thing. Have you ever heard of people who, or read about cases where people were so desperate for money that they would do anything to get it, including fraud? And that fraud ended with them being desperately poor. Have you heard about people who were so desperate to have a happy family, this picture-perfect family, that they crushed their kids with their expectations, and their kids didn't even want to have a relationship with them. Have you heard of people who were so desperate to get married that nobody would date them? And imagine the advice you would give if a single woman came to you and said, there's this, this guy who wants to have a, a part of my life, but he only wants me for my body. And then you'd tell him, well, I have nothing to do with him, because that has to be secondary, it can't be primary. And... C.S. Lewis, in another book, he says, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can only get second things by putting first things first. So these secondary things have to happen, but they can only happen when you put something else first. You have to get the order right. And I think that Paul is making a similar argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you make wisdom your aim in life, you will not find wisdom. If you make Christ your aim in life, you will find Christ and you will find wisdom. And this is where he's telling the Corinthians, they have to get the order right. And this could be done by by focusing on a single truth, and that is Christ. So let's go ahead, we're gonna listen to chapter two here and then just keep some notes of things that you found noteworthy about chapter two or things that you have questions about. First Corinthians two. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the two of you are wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we have got a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not crucify the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, 
that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? I keep trying to figure out where they do those different voices and when they do them, and it's super weird. I don't know. Okay, uh, I'm just going to have to get over it. So what, what stood out to you, or what questions do you have? Yeah, Micah. Yeah, we'll get you, Micah. What stood out to me is the multiple times that it mentions that he didn't speak using human wisdom. And I'd like to sort of uh, explore what's meant by human wisdom, because it could mean multiple things. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. What stood out to me was the number of times the word spirit is used. That stood out to me, too. And, matter of fact, I have some charts. We'll get to it. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to bounce to it right now. Because that stuck out to me, and I started looking it up. Well, it's way late in these charts. There we go. This is the number of times, and I filtered them based on when it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes it refers to the Holy Spirit. Seven times in chapter two. That's a lot. And it actually it's clustered in just a handful of verses real tightly. Chapter 12 has more, but it's really throughout the book. Then it kind of got me thinking about how many times the Spirit show up throughout, compared to in 1 Corinthians, to other books. And so I charted these. Now, I got a little bit lazy here because what I didn't do is I didn't do what I did with that prior chart. We'll go through each example and figure out which one's the Holy Spirit and which one's both. But it's probably an indication of how many times the Holy Spirit shows up. And Acts is up here. So Acts is number one. 1 Corinthians was number two. If you had told me to sort the books by which ones have, whole, have spirit in them the most, I would, not have, I would not have said 1 Corinthians was number two. I might have guessed Acts, because I kind of knew Acts. Luke was telling the story of how the, the gospel was being pushed from Jerusalem into Samaria and into the uttermost parts featuring the spirit. But I would not have guessed 1 Corinthians would be number two. So yeah, that stuck out to me as well. What else stuck out to you? If you want that chart, by the way, I put the slides. They are on the link in the front page of the book. Maybe let's talk about Micah's point about human wisdom. What do you think that means?
Yeah, so I like the two because you, you took, like Michael, you pointed out how there's, there's multiple ways you could understand that. And part of your answer was you looked at the results of a focus on human wisdom. And you can, you see, you can almost classify it by what it winds up doing to people around you, which is precisely what's happened here in First Corinthians. You know, if you go to a church and you, you realize that there is no peace in this church, maybe you need to ask some questions about, is something gone wrong? Are they not focusing on the gospel in the right way? Like so you can kind of work from the function back up to, to the source of the problems. Yes? Yeah, that's a good point. There's actually several things in James that I started to realize align up nice with this text. And he talks about how you ha- there are things that you desire and you do not have, and that's why you have this enmity here. And I think it's simpler, something similar to what the, first Corin- the Corinthians are falling into. Like, there's certain things in like they desperately want. They want this notoriety, or they want this kind of performance that you know, I have achieved. And that winds up causing problems when you do it in the, in the human way. Yes. Oh, Bob. Uh, one of the things the difference between God's wisdom and human wisdom, I think he brings out in verse 1, uh, because he says, Did not come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And, and so, uh, you know, we talk about explaining things simply. That's what God does. It's when we get involved that we start making confusing. Uh, using terms and, and aspects that just, it takes a much higher education, much more wisdom, worldly wisdom, to be able to use and understand. So it's the simpleness, simpleness of God's message that he emphasizes. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, I admit you made a point kind of related to that last week about how it's going back to those first principles, that first basic gospel that you got. Everybody can understand that. Yeah, think about how if you were going to write a story of God coming to Earth and how different it would be than the story of this story, you know? And Bonhoeffer had said something similar to what you just said, where he's pointing out how there were people who were thinking of things that were thinking that they could replace God's knowledge by learning the underlying principles themselves. Like people are trying, if, I, if God is wise, then if I get more and more wise, I can start to approach God. And if God is strong, then if I get stronger, I can approach God. And then he points out there's something that completely levels all of this, which is the cross. Nobody would predict that that's how you show what wisdom is. And of course, if you go and you try to become wise, you become wise in your own eyes. It pollutes the hearts of everybody who tries to get it. If you try to become powerful, it pollutes the hearts of everybody who tries to get it. So it pollutes everybody. And God focuses on character, right? It's a very different story than than one we would have come up with. Uh, Right. Wisdom of the world always satisfies the flesh. There's always some motive behind it for self. And the spirit is just the opposite. It's caring for others. 
Right, and this, got, this goes back to Russ's point. This is why it, it doesn't result in the strife and dissension that human wisdom does. Yes. So I think it's interesting. I see this as a comparison of two different wisdoms. Um, because if you take out the chapter of delineation, in chapter 1, verse 30, right at the end, he said, Christ becomes wisdom for us. And then he's talking about saying, I don't come to you with wisdom. So he's not saying he's not coming with the wisdom of Christ. He's saying, I'm not coming with the wisdom of man. I'm not coming with my own thoughts, my own desires, my own preferences in the way I think it should be. Ultimately, I'm coming to you with the with the wisdom that Christ is Yeah, I 100% agree with you that I think he is contrasting two different types of wisdom. That's why I'll say wisdom, I keep putting in quotes, right? Wisdom, right? It, this is wisdom, no doubt. It's just different than the one that the world understands. Yeah, that, I like the, you, you use that word, otherworldly. There's this book written, I think it was 2019, and it was a weird apologetic book. Because usually apologetic book, you just say it, it's like, I, I'm, I'm getting bored already because it sounds very logical and very cerebral. And what this author was saying was that if you look at the gospel story, even if it's fiction, it's still a miracle. This is such a bizarre book, a bizarre story of the gospel. Humans didn't come up with this. And, like, try to come up with a story that elevates the elevates character more than this this story had. You'll never be able to come up with one. You just won't. Like you're still stuck with a miracle. Even if you said men came up with well, who, who men could have come up with this? This is better than every story we've ever had. And I think he's got a good point. It's otherworldly. Yes, Ryan. So 
Oh, I totally agree. And in fact, that's what explains why some of them were denying the resurrection, right? Because if, if you're supposed to just be a, a free-floating ghost, there's no body, so they would just mock the resurrection. You can see this is actually happening in Corinth. Also, I think what you said about how they're patterning them, they're, they're following their culture about this whole thing of rhetoricians, right? These sophists, these speakers. Because if you go and you read on this, you do see some patterns in there when they would attach themselves to a, a speaker and they would call themselves disciples using the same words that it's actually used in the Greek for followers of Jesus. But the difference was is that you would start to look like that teacher. Now, that shouldn't be different. We want to be like Jesus in a certain sense. But then they would fight against other competing teachers. It was filled with a bunch of strife. Uh, Dio Chrysostom comes to Corinth in the first century, and he notes the same thing at, at the end of the first century, that these people would just be fighting. And there's cases, there's one case in particular where one of these teachers, his disciples, had offended the disciples as the other teacher. And so the disciples over here went to the other ones and beat him up. They didn't intend to kill him, but they wound up killing the guy. I mean, this is how much strife there was between these groups. And you can see this happening here, and Paul's like, no, 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 this is not how this works. We're all on the same page. Yes, John. Um, I found it interesting you said that I don't look after your guys Christ over culture. That's also the way I think about the spirit. Like the spirit of God is the culture of God sometimes, right? It's, it's mm. like we think of Jesus as the word, right? Um, and then the, the underlying culture of, of God. So I, I think it might be kind of a clash between these two cultures, right? That human culture and then what is God? Yeah, that's a good point. And that reminds me, I remember, Craig, you did a sermon a while ago about how the, the media that we consume affects us longer and deeper than we think it does. And I was thinking about that lately because I've noticed that there's a, when we think of that, when we think of media, we think of probably TV shows and movies primarily. But have you noticed people who, you notice they start to get dark and cynical? And then you realize they're also reading or watching a lot of news or politics. So we don't think, I tend to think of movies and TV shows, but I think it's actually, we need to include these other things because they can make you dark and cynical. And I'd I'd like to think that that just stays in that political world, but I've seen it where it leaks out into interpersonal lives too. And that's that's a different culture. Yeah, that's that's a good, I like that. The spirit is the culture of God. Uh, Regan. They're not dealing with the sin problem with that, um, to where it's really easy to to deny or forget about Genesis, which is the beginning of this, and like Bob was saying, this is simple stuff. And the wisdom of man is on a scale that it's, what, 70 to 80 years of your life, but there are eternal implications of what you, you believe that matter forever. And that's why it's kind of foolish, because... The, the way the world systems are, are built up, there's a lot of industry and there's a lot of commitment to it. There's a lot of false promise and hope in it and correcting it. But we're never dealing with the sin or the character, the, the word that you use, where it's foolish because we try to pivot around this one thing with all the intellect in the world, but we're not addressing the one problem and fix it by standing in our place. And it's just, it seems that that wisdom would totally be foolish to this world and the constructs that are here because it's, un- it's kind of unseen. Um, 
but it's it's eternal. If you're talking about, I've heard that the long ribbon where your life is this much of a thread, and the ribbon goes on forever. That's probably foolish to a lot of people because we're invested in the shortest part of the ribbon instead of the whole core. Yeah, that I like that. How if we focus on our own stuff, making something of ourselves, it's what eighty years. Maybe we're lucky we get ninety years. That's it. But if you look at it a different way, it's about giving yourself to something bigger than yourself, something transcendent. Now you're giving yourself to something that will last for an eternity. Right? And I think that's where they've fallen. They've got a kind of lost focus of that. Any other questions or comments? All right. Let's go to question number four. So why does Paul resolve to know Christ, only Christ and him crucified? Why focus it? interesting because if you think of it that way the fact that if if you are eloquent that could actually be a problem right that could actually take away from the message i think somebody said that last week actually too uh, yes You know, I hadn't really thought of it from that perspective. Like, he, Paul is evolving on this, clearly. I mean, he's been making a massive change in his life. Yeah, I, I think there's good reason to think that might be true. But he talks about the thorn in the flesh being left there to keep him humble. So that tells you a little bit of what's happening with him in the background. That's a good point. Greg? Yeah, you see, you see Paul's approach. Sorry. You see Paul's approach changing when he first started preaching the gospel. And we see him doing that. He would go to the law and the prophets and communicate to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Um, these are Gentiles, primarily. And so his approach changes. Um, but really, uh, you, you see later in the book, he's telling them, I'm having to give you milk again. You, know, you, should, you should be willing to accept the meat now. And I've got to go back to the basics of fundamentals. If if these Christians don't get this, n- nothing else is going to benefit them. We, we've got to build on this foundation, he says. Christ and him crucified. And if we don't get that, we're, we're wasting time with all the rest. The rest is important. But we, we've got to get solid on this foundation first. Yeah, and I like the way you put it, too, because I think there are other subjects that are important. Now, but they all need to be moored to this one. So we're not saying we can't go to these other subjects. We just need to realize that they're secondary. They have to be moored to this. Yeah, good point. So I think it becomes strong in love. To have any effect whatsoever, love has to flush itself in earthly work. That is the story of Christ. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And if you think about it, we talk about the, the, the miracle of the incarnation. You know, God coming to earth and living in a body. But there's another stage to that, to your point, which is that God comes down to earth in a body, and then eventually Christ is put in millions of bodies across the earth of people who try to act like him. Right? That's, that's the second miracle of the incarnation, is that people will love like the way that we were loved. Yes, Bob. This whole message is 